passage that we come to today really just kind of hits the big picture as you're moving into that. It starts off and it just kind of sets the tone for what, what else is going to follow here in this practical section of application in chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians. And what it's really all about, and everything else is going to fall under this banner, is it's about viewing uh, the world, the Christian life, from a proper perspective. Having the right view of things as you go through this journey that we call life. I never will forget when I was living out in California the last time we uh, went to a thing over in Camarillo called the Amazing Maze Maze. And it was a corn maze. Anybody ever been to one of those things? Come on, they don't have those in Gardena. There's one. See, he's, see, right here, he's a great guy to have with this because he's tall. I did that. I brought the tallest guy I knew with me. I got a buddy of mine. He's six, eight and a half. And I thought, I'm going to have an edge and we're going to win this thing. The corn's like 10 foot tall, so it didn't do a bit of good. But we went in there, you know, and it was like, this is going to be a breeze. The kids will enjoy it, but it's going to be easy. You're just going through a maze. We got inside of that thing, and I'm telling you, it took us a good two, two and a half hours to get out of there because everything looks the same. You're looking around at all this. All you see is corn stalks, and it's thick. You know, I, I found my uh, integrity being challenged a few times as I thought about sending my son, who was about this tall then, through pieces of the maze. So I, what's over there? You know, so we get out maybe a little quicker. But the problem was, as I looked at that, it would, everything looked the same. So you turn down this corner, you remember, okay, I've been this way, and you're trying to keep track of all that in your head. But in the end, it all just begins to look the same. When we got back, we got our, our copy, I think it was the LA Times, and, uh, oh, and on the front page of one of the sections, it had a picture of the maze that we'd been to. And I thought it was so cool because here's this picture of this maze, and, and they do it in a design like this one we were in, looked like a mission. But when you look at it from the top like that, you know what? It was really easy. I mean, I could just go like this and go through it with no problem, even those acres upon acres. But when you're down in there in the midst of it, sometimes it's pretty hard to get around unless you're maybe a little lucky or something, right? And this is really, I think, a great illustration for what we're talking about, not the lucky part. But the, the, as you look at life, as you view the walk that each one of us has been given by our sovereign God, as we try to view it, instead of looking at it merely from the horizontal and seeing all the stalks of corn, as it were, around us, but instead try to view it from the proper perspective, looking at things the way they are viewed from above, then the, the game becomes really a whole different animal. You're able to, to look at that, that, that situation that you run into that's very, very difficult, and instead of looking at it merely as a difficulty that is blocking your way in some way, you now look at it and go, you know, I wonder what God's going to do with this. I wonder how God's going to use this. You know, God allowed this to happen in my life, and he is in control, and he knows the path and all that kind of stuff, so my, my task is to honor him, set my mind on the things above, serve him, follow him, and the rest of that stuff becomes exceedingly more easy to deal with. I'm not saying the situations aren't hard. You understand that, right? They're still hard from an earthly perspective. But I'm saying we're able then to view these things in, in light of a bigger picture. That's what our passage is about, and that's really the introduction to this area, this whole uh, applicational section that we're running into in Colossians 3 and 4. Let's read the passage. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Isn't that beautiful? Let's look at it in a little bit more detail, okay? And on your outline, you have some keys, okay? I'm going to give you really three keys to living the resurrected life well, the life that we have in Christ now. And the first one, point number one on your outline, you'll see there, it begins, and this is what we see in verses 1 through 3a, we need to realize our past conversion, see what God has done. And this is where he starts. Look at verse, three, or verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, just like we saw back in verse 20 of chapter 2, that if there in the Greek is a, uh, what they call a first-class condition, which is uh, something that's assumed true for the sake of argument. It's, it's more true than false. It's not if, like we say, well, if it rains today, we won't go uh, hiking. It's not that kind of if. Like, I wonder what's going to happen if. It's the kind of if that says since. And you could translate that that way. Since you have been raised up with Christ. And what it's doing here, in contrast to verses 20 and 23 that we looked at last time, which introduced the consequences of, of, de of dying in Christ, since you have died with Christ, this one introduces the resurrection aspect of it and takes it much further and, and deals with the consequences of what's going on here. If then you have been raised up or, or co-resurrected with Christ. This is interesting to me. Do you realize, theologically speaking, that you have been resurrected with Christ already? You ever thought about that? I mean, just think about that for a second. You say, well, you know, I didn't die yet. Well, you died to the old self, right? And now you've been raised. That's the picture of baptism, isn't it? You've been raised to walk in newness of life, right? You've been resurrected to a new situation. You're no longer an old creation. You're now a new creation. Okay, you tracking with me so far on this? This is really important because now our citizenship is no longer here, but our citizenship is in heaven, right? Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us. Uh, in fact, we're told in the word of God, Hebrews chapter 11, that we are now strangers, right? And exiles here on earth. This world is not our home. We, we don't uh, search and have a lasting city here, but we are to seek literally that which is to come. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, and we're aliens and strangers here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. There, there's a whole different thing that's taking place when you are co-resurrected, when you have died to the old self and are living now a new life. You have been co-resurrected with Christ. It's the beauty of a passage like Galatians 2.20, right? Which is a, an amazing capsule of the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, Galatians 2.20 tells us that things have changed, that it's different now, and guess what? Praise God to that, right? Isn't that awesome? I mean, I have been crucified with Christ. It doesn't say I'm gonna be. It says I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, Right? It's a whole different animal now who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's the reality. That's not just a scripture that you get crocheted on a pillow and put on your couch at home. This is a real truth. You, you've died. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been raised to a new situation. Now, the call here and why Paul's really saying what he's saying here is, hey, live consistent with that reality. 
That's really what's going on. Now, don't just say, I get it up here, but live it here and with your hands and your feet, your life. Live consistent with the reality of the resurrected life. If then, since you have been raised up with Christ, what are you supposed to do? Look at the verse, verse 1. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I love that little phrase, keep seeking the things above. We do it, uh, we write it down in English. Uh, it's keep seeking with a, like a direct object, right? The things above. But in the Greek, the, one of the ways that Greek can emphasize things is the way it orders the words, all right? Uh, in other words, we have to put them in a certain order from make sense in English, but because of the way cases and things like that work, the declensions of Greek, uh, they can put a word anywhere in a sentence they want to. And you know because of the way it's uh, declined that, that it's the direct object or it's the indirect object, you know, things like that. So what they've done here, and they'll do it in two times in this passage, is it says this literally. The things above keep seeking. Why would they do that? They're not Yoda, right? I mean, why would you do that? The, 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 the reason you do that is they could move things around. This is the beauty of that language. They could push it all the way to the front and say, you know what? This is what I want you to pay attention to. The things above. The things above. Keep seeking those. The things above. Keep seeking those. And by the way, the keep seeking there is presence, uh, and a present imperative. It's command. And it says this, and it's present tense has this idea, continually, as a pattern of your life, continually keep on seeking the things above. What are the things above? Well, obviously the things above really are, are spiritual values uh, that characterize Christ. And in context of what we've been talking about in Colossians, instead of intellectualism, instead of mysticism, legalism, ritualism, asceticism, all that kind of stuff, keep seeking the things above, Christ-type things. Now, does that sound a little bit, what, if, if, if we were to have Christ and ask him, what should we be seeking, what do you think you would say? Before you answer that, I don't really care what you think you'd say, because that doesn't matter, Right? He's told us what he said, right? And it sounds really familiar to another verse in, in the Gospels. Can you remember this? What does it sound like? Matthew 6, 30, we're getting closer, 33. Thanks, Mom. I gave her, I gave her, in case nobody says anything, Mom, please say Matthew 6, 33, so I don't feel like I'm full up here. Matthew 6, 33, right? Set your mind right. Treasure up. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Keep seeking the things above. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? And all these things will be added to you. Isn't that great? Because that's Jesus' point, right? You put your perspective on the above things. Keep treasuring up. Laying up for yourself treasures in heaven is his point. Set your mind on his kingdom and his righteousness. That's his character and his plan. And the rest of everything falls into place. How cool is that? How many times have you sat around going, I wonder what I'm supposed to do about this. I wonder what I'm supposed to do about that. And I wish God would just, you know, pin me a little note or send me a text or an email or something that says, you're supposed to go to work for this company or you're supposed to take this ministry or you're supposed to marry this guy or this gal, Right? But what he does is something much more profound than that and quite honestly much more encouraging to us than that is he says, I want you to do it more at the base, the root level. I want you to seek first my kingdom. I want you to seek first my righteousness. And as you do that, guess what happens? The rest of it falls into place. All these things will be added to you. 
So you got a job offer, right? You got two job offers. How great is that in a recession, right? Two job offers. Which one should I take, Lord? Please write it on the wall. Seek first my kingdom and his righteousness. Right? And then within those parameters, those guardrails, as it's been said before, right? Make the decision that you want to make, the desire of your heart between those two jobs. If they both fall in the parameter of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Isn't that easy? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it precious that God would lay it out in such a way that would give us an involvement in the process a little bit? You see what I'm saying? That's pretty cool. He, he cares about us and, and teaches us and trains us along that way. Well, this is the same thing. He's reminding us. Paul's going, hey, I'm not saying, you know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness in those words. I'm not quoting Matthew 6.33, but the, 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 the precept is the same. Set your mind on the things above. The above, keep seeking those things. And let the rest of it fall in place. The things above. Look at what he says, where Christ is. I love that. Because Christ is not in a tomb somewhere. You remember this, right? He's not in a grave. We don't go find a grave. Look, that's Christ's tomb. He's not there anymore. He's come out of the grave. He's a victor over death. He's resurrected. And he is now, where does it say? Seated at the right hand of God, which is a place of unrivaled prestige and unparalleled authority. The right hand of God. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. By the way, sometimes look at Ephesians 2, 6, and you'll see that we're seated with him in the heavenlies, which is pretty cool that he's involved us in the process like that. Positionally, we have been put in that place. Now, practically, we don't feel all the, the ramifications of that, right? But positionally, you need to know that you have been saved, you are pure and righteous in the eyes of God because of the work of Jesus Christ, and you have an inheritance which cannot be defiled, taken away, rust, steel, stolen, uh, any of that kind of stuff. He has provided this, and it's as real as if you were there right now. Now, since that's the case, Paul's saying, live like it. Live, in consistent, live consistent with that reality. Verse 2. He repeats it almost, doesn't he? And he just says it a different way in a positive and negative. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In case you didn't get the idea of keep seeking the things above, let me just tell you that you need to set your mind on the things above. I said that once, right? And in case you're confused of what above is, I don't mean above like where the planes are flying. I mean heavenly things, right? Not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind is a present imperative verb. Again, again it's the idea constantly. Fix your thoughts on the things above. By the way, the same construction is true here. The things above, set your mind on. Emphasis again in the Greek. And this idea of setting your mind, it describes a deliberate act of the will. Where you're saying, you know, I, I'm choosing to set my mind in a certain place now. I'm deciding to obey what God has told me to do with the empowerment that he has given me. And in accordance with the truth that he has shown me in his word... And I'm going to begin to dwell, live in, think on those kind of things. The great commentator Lightfoot said, you must not only seek heaven, but now it's more specific here in verse 2, you must think heaven, think the things above. And what he's describing here is what we should desire to have consistently as the operation of our life, uh, like the needle of a compass always po points north, Right? 
Our hearts, our, our bent, our inward bent should always be towards the things of God, should always be looking at everything through the light of eternity and setting our mind on the things above. Somebody once said, our feet are on earth, but our minds are in heaven. And you know, you know I think I've said it before, the D.L. Moody quote, you know, they're too heavenly minded for any earthly good. Crummy quote. Love, D.L. Moody's a good guy and all that kind of stuff by and large. But you know, that's a crummy quote. Because you cannot be too heavenly minded for earthly good. I know what he's saying. I know where he's coming from. All they're doing is kind of being ethereal in their thinking. But that's not truly heavenly minded according to scriptures. Because heavenly minded according to scriptures has an impact on the earth around us, right? There is no such thing as a heavenly heavenly mindset that disconnects from the earth around us. I mean, if I'm heavenly minded, if I set my mind on the things above, if I live in accordance with his precepts, let me ask you a question. Does that make me a better husband to my wife? That's an earthly relationship, right? You bet it does. Because he's told me how to do that. That I'm to love her sacrificially like Christ loved the church, right? Does that make her a better wife to me? You bet it does. Because she's doing the, her, her commands to, to love me, right? And to care for me and to serve me and come alongside and all that kind of stuff that's so important. If I have the heavenly mindset in accordance with Scripture, it cannot help but have a positive effect on the world around me. I'm not saying it changes everything. I'm not saying that if I love my wife as Christ loves the church, that it's always going to be perfect, right? Because she's a human being too. If we're both doing that, I can tell you what, it's the best it can ever be. But if neither one of us are, oh my, look out. I'll have a positive impact on my children because I'll try to train them up in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. I'll have a positive impact on my parents because I'll try to honor my father and my mother as scripture has has told me to. I mean, I'll have a positive impact on my community because I'm not going to be killing people, stealing from them and doing that kind of stuff, right? I'll be a better citizen because I've read Romans 13, 1 through 7, where it talks about how I'm to to, to, to respond to my leaders in a certain way, or, or in Timothy, where it talks about how I'm to pray for those who are in leadership over me. And on and on it goes. My employer, if I'm an employer, I'm going to treat my employees better the right way. If I'm an employee, I'm going to respect my employer biblically and work as unto Christ. You see what I'm saying? If I'm heavenly minded, that means I am taking into account the things that God has instructed me to do by the power that he has given me to do those things, and it will have a positive impact on the way that I influence and connect with society around me. Doesn't mean they'll love me. Doesn't mean everything's going to turn out perfect. Please don't take it that way, right? Blessed are you when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those kind of verses should be popping in your head to know that sometimes there's resistance, true? But I'll tell you what. As I'm doing that, I will be better at all those kind of things. Set your mind on the things above. I tell you what, folks, and and pay attention to this. This is the watershed. You know what a watershed is in Southern California? I know last week I talked about dipping snuff, which nobody probably knew about from my Texas background. How many people knew what snuff was last week? Raise your hand, seriously. Sinners. No. uh, (laughs) You know what a watershed is? Watershed's kind of like continental divide. If you've ever driven across our country, there's a line that goes through this uh, north-south, basically, of the United States around the Rocky Mountains that, that is the place where every bit of water from that side goes 
towards, uh, on the east side goes towards the Atlantic, and on the west side goes towards the Pacific. Okay, it's a watershed. That's the point where it goes one way or the other. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. This idea of what you set your mind on is the watershed of your life. If you set your mind on the things above, your life, your bent will go towards the things of God. If you set your mind on the things on earth as your primary stuff, it will go the other way. That's just the way it works. And that's why Paul says, set your mind on the things above under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who moved him to write these words. So I guess the question that you really want to be pondering is, you know, we, we want to see Scripture applied, not just studied, right? What do you set your mind on when you get the chance? When work is all done, when the kids aren't pulling on your leg for something, when you have time that is not committed to anything else, where does your mind run? What do you set your mind on? Very telling. Very telling. It echoes back again to the words of Christ in Luke chapter 12, verse 34 where you have that where there connection that Christ says. He says, for where your, heart, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, that's what your thoughts are going to run to. Where your treasure is, that's where your mind's going to go when it's totally uncommitted to anything else, and it's probably going to be fighting you to go there even when you've got a bunch of other stuff going on as well. Satan's job, see... Think, have you ever thought about this? Why in the world would Satan even care or, you know, why would they even try to affect a Christian because a Christian's been saved, uh, the inheritance can't be taken away, you know, all that kind of stuff. Why in the world would Satan and his forces even have anything to do with you anymore because that's a lost cause. Let's move along to something else. And it's this issue right here. I remember when we were living in New Orleans as newlyweds a long time ago, right? There was a, an interesting way that, they, they would, uh, that thieves would steal from you. When we were living there, we lived kind of downtown, almost near the French Quarter. And it's a pretty rough part of town. It was an old converted loft. It was a cool place right off the Mississippi River. We loved it. Uh, a lot of interesting people watching. But uh, they had this thing that they would do. And, and a, a lady would be driving along in a car, typically a lady, by herself with her purse on the seat beside her. Typically, you know, kind of set your purse over to the side. I know I do. No. Um, <laughs> And they would be, she'd be driving along, and she'd come to a stoplight, a red light, and stop. And a guy would walk up on the driver's side with a piece of like cardboard like you use for projects when you're a kid in junior high, you know, a white piece of cardboard, and would go up and just shake this thing right there. The gal sitting in there, typically, would look over distracted by this flashing that's going on over there and be distracted over here for a minute. And on the other side, this guy's partner would smash the window, grab the purse, and they'd run before anything, anybody knew what was going on. If I hear a rash of this kind of stuff breaking out in Gardena, I'm going to know where, or in uh, Garden Grove, I'm going to know where this is coming from, all right? You see, distraction technique to rob you. Satan's main modus operandi for you as a believer at this point is basically to distract you so that you're not a productive part of what God has planned for you. You think of Peter when he was walking on the water. You remember this? Peter gets out of the boat and Christ is walking on the water. He's like, man, I want to do that too. I got the faith. I know you can have me do it too. So Lord, command me to come out there too. And he, Jesus says, come on. And, and he steps out of the boat onto the water. Can you imagine this, by the way? And he's on the water and he's walking on water. How incredibly wild would that be? 
only diminished by the fact that there's something much more incredible to be fixing your eyes on. That's Christ, right? The God over the sea. But do you remember what happened? As he was walking along on the water towards Christ, he began to what? Sink, didn't he? Why? What does it say? It says, as he noticed or heard the, the, the sound of the waves and the look of the waves, he started to set his mind on the earthly things around him and off of Christ, the heavenly thing. What happened? He began to sink. He began to, to just go down in the water in the, to his demise. And he's like, Lord, save me. And he set his mind back on the right thing. And what happened? Jesus pulled him out. You see, we're tempted in this life because there are many waves and there are a lot of howling winds around us to, to, to be distracted and to view those things in light of uh, the fear of what they are rather than the potential of what Christ may do through that. And so the command still is to set your mind on the things above, right? Focus upon Christ. And, and so you're looking at whatever situation you face in life and going, how in the world would the Lord have me to be, behave or respond or react to what I face today. I've just got a report back from the doctor that I have cancer. How am I supposed to deal with that? I've just had a situation in my family where a child is wandering. How am I supposed to deal with that? People are behaving poorly towards me. How am I to deal with it? There's sin in my own life. What do I do? There's sin in the church. How do I deal with it? I set my mind on the things above. I look at what God has to say, and then I deal with it according with that and leave the rest to him. That would have been a good place for an amen right? Isn't that simple in a way? I'm not saying easy again. I'm saying simple. Set your mind on the things above. And in case you didn't get it, contrast, not on the things that are on earth. And what Paul does there somewhat indirectly is he says, I want you to understand that there's nothing good enough again to supersede Christ, to set your mind on. So as he's dealing with the false teachers, right, the intellectualism, ritualism, all that kind of isms, right, there's nothing worth shifting your focus to. The only thing worthy of your focus is Christ. So don't set your mind on other stuff because nothing is good enough to supersede Christ. Now, again, we often set our mind on the things below, don't we? We're pretty good at that. And I understand that. It's hard to see the things above. They're not physically appraised, Right? So we set our mind on our 401k balance and our boat and our house and our property and our money and our status and our work positions and all this kind of stuff. And that's really easy to set your mind on because that's what you're dealing with most of the hours of the day. And it takes real discipline to set your mind on how God wants to see you. Okay, you've got money or you don't have money, one of the two, right? What does God want to do in and through that in your life? How does he want you to respond? How does he want you to trust him? How does he want you to... Uh, provide, if you have it, right? But it's hard to, to train ourselves because we are so immersed in this place. Philippians 3, 18 through 20 contrasts the world and th those of the world and those of Christ. And it says this, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. And then he contrasts, he says, for our, we're not like that, because our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Jesus was calling disciples in Luke chapter 9. And there were people who were, you know, he, he had this disciples, he was going around teaching, and then there were people who said, you know, I want to follow too. And Luke chapter 9, it talks about how they, he and his disciples were going along the road and somebody came up to him and said, hey, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds good, right? Guy says that to us in a church environment, what do we do? We sign him up to teach class or something, don't we? Really? Somebody's committed? Okay, cool. Jesus said to him, he gave him a reminder. He said, the foxes have holes and the, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's not, it's not you're not just following for the fun and the, the food and the, the miracles and all that kind of stuff. Let me tell you what you're following, you need to be following for is you need to be following for the right reasons. And the inference there in the passage is that the guy left. Another guy comes up and says, and Jesus says to him, says, follow me. And he says, well, I will, but first, Permit me to go and bury my father. Again, the construction there is the idea that his father's not dead yet. He's just still alive and he needs to take care of him for a while longer. And then after he's dead and he's freed up, then he'll, then he'll follow Christ. And Jesus said to him, he said, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. First things first. He, he, he sees through what they're saying with their lips and he understands that the motive of the heart is not there. It's not really about just taking care of dad who needs some help. Sure, certainly, that's a good thing to do, right? But he was using that as an excuse not to t- commit to Christ completely. Another came and said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those who are at home. And Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom. His point is you need not that you have to abandon your family or you don't care for your parents or things. That's not the point at all. The point is this. You're putting everything on the altar, right, in view of a bigger picture. So if it does cost you comfort, guess what? That's okay. If it does cost you relationships, even family relationships, that's okay. And if you follow Christ and there are unbelievers in your family, it will cost you some things, I'm here to tell you, right? You probably, many of you have experienced that, I'm sure. But the call's still the same, you know? You've got to set your set of priorities and your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You need to hold on loosely to this world, to the stuff. Instead of being like the rich young ruler who uh, said, I want to, what do I have to do to be saved? And he's like, sell your possessions and give it to the poor, which isn't really the way you get saved, but he's pointing to his heart and saying, you know what? I have to be everything. And the rich young ruler just wept, went away weeping because he, he cared about his stuff more than he cared about the kingdom of God. Focus is key. By the way, as you try to set your mind, you might be, and this is a great question, set your mind on things about how do I do that? Right? How can I really develop that in my life? Let me tell you, certainly you have to be in the Word of God, right? You need to be in the Scriptures. You need to be reading the Scriptures, pouring over the Scriptures. You need to be uh, together with the uh, church family, 
with fellowship with other believers who can spur you on to love and good deeds, things like that. Let me tell you one of the great things that's really helped me in my own life, and that's scripture memory. Because you cannot memorize scripture very easily and not set your mind on the things above, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not talking about, you know, John 11:35, Jesus wept. I'm talking about, you know, yeah, I've done it, just like check, Pastor Dave, as we're back into legalism now, right? No, it's something different than that. It's, you know, take a chunk. You know what? Take Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 and memorize that. Take the book of Colossians and memorize it. It can be done. You say, that's a lot. It's not going to get you into heaven any faster, right? And it's not going to earn you favor with God or shouldn't with anybody else. But I'll tell you what it does is you pour over the scriptures as you memorize. Oh, man, it changes your life because you're setting your mind on the things above. And it helps as you encounter the things that are on earth so that you may view those things in the proper perspective. By the way, do not think for a minute because your mind is currently set on the things above that it will in the future be set on the things above. Right? I mean, good people fail. Is that true or false? I mean, you've probably been around people before that, that uh, you've seen that walked a vibrant walk and then they, they kind of lost interest for a little bit or something. They kind of just really weren't as passionate about Christ. I'm not saying they went away from the church or lost their salvation or anything like that. What I'm saying is they just suddenly wasn't as important as it used to be. What happened? The mind got distracted. Let me give you an example of that. Turn back in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 14. Okay, Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 14. There is a guy there who, who was a king. Okay, and this king's name was Asa, A-S-A, Asa. All right? And Asa was a good king. He was a king of Judah, okay? And he was a good king by and large. And we see that. Look at chapter 14. Verse 2, it says, God even says that in his word. He says, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Chapter 14, verse 2 of Second Chronicles. Chapter 3 describes it. For he removed the altars, the foreign altars, the, the high places, the incense altars. He tore down sacred pillars. He cut down the asherim, that's idols. Verse 4, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God and observe his laws and commandments. He led the country. He was seeking for them to follow God as well. Verse 5, the kingdom was undisturbed during this time. That's Deuteronomy 28, by the way, the blessings and the cursings as you follow in Christ. Are you following the Lord in the, in the Old Testament economy there with Israel? And so they built cities and built walls, and God gave them rest. The passage continues on. Built an army, by the way, of, of 580,000 men during that time. 300,000 from Judah, uh, 280,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. And then when you get down to verse 9, look at it, there's a test. Zerah, the Ethiopian, came against Asa and, and, and Judah, and he came against them with how many, does it say there, a million, okay, men. 580,000 sounded pretty good until you saw a million, right? And 300 chariots, which, by the way, was a real game changer in that kind of warfare. What was Asa's response? Look at verse 11. 
Asa's response was this. He went, he went out, dropped on his face. He sought the things above. He, he looked at his, uh, the things below and said, you know what? I see this, but that's not the main thing. Let me set my mind on the things above and go to the one who is sovereign over all these matters, the Lord God, Jehovah. So he prayed. He said, Lord, there's no one besides you to help in battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you. Let no man prevail against you. Isn't that good? I mean, he just went to the right place. man. God, I don't know what your plan is. I don't, I don't know why this is all happening in my life right now. But I'll tell you this. I know you're God. I know you're sovereign. And I know you have control over these matters. And Lord, I want your name to be honored. And I don't want any man to prevail over your, tri- your people. The result you see in verse 12 there says, the Lord, who? The Lord routed the Ethiopians. I love that. They didn't stand a chance. You can bring your millions with you, but if the Lord's against you, you know what? You don't stand a chance. Chapter 15, look down a little ways. A prophet comes in and tells Asa this. He says, the Lord is with you when you're with him, and if you seek him, he'll let you find you find him, but if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Again, this is really a Deuteronomy 28 in a nutshell again. So Asa's kind of getting this reminder. He says, you know what? This needs to be the main thing in my life all the time. And so he removes idols. Apparently some had come in and been put up. He restores the altar of God. Apparently that had fallen into disrepair. He assembles the people for a big sacrifice and a covenant together to seek the Lord. By the way, whoever didn't had to be killed. Greater, small man or woman. Verse 15. The result, the Lord gave him rest on every side. By the way, he even removed his own mom, right? Because she had made an idol. His own mom. And then verse 17, Asa's heart was blameless. Okay, trial number two comes, uh, comes again, right? Chapter 16, verse 1, Baasha, king of Israel, comes up against him. Remember the tribe, the kingdom has been split, right? So Baasha comes up. He starts uh, making, uh, building, fortresses and all this kind of stuff to, to impede upon Asa's land. And Asa's response was, was it the same thing? Fall to your face, go to the Lord. What do you want me to do? Don't let your name be. No, it wasn't that at all. What did he do? Look at verse 2. He took all the gold and silver from the temple treasury, <laughs> from God's house, right? And he took it to Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Aram, and he made a covenant for protection. Aram, by the way, is Syria. Maybe you've heard of that country in the news lately, right? Same folks, same issues. But he goes to this guy who's no friend of, of, of Israel by any stretch of the imagination even then, right? And he goes and says, Here's, here, I'll pay you. You just please uh, help me outnumber Basha. He's coming up from Israel. Well, it worked temporarily. But a little bit later after that, in verse 7, you see the prophet Hanani comes in and he says this. He says to Asa, he says, because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, there's problems. He said, you could have taken Aram out of the picture and not have to deal with that. Can you imagine if there was no Syria now? I'm not, this is not a political statement in any way, stretch or form. But if Syria had been eliminated, if all those countries, when, they, when Joshua came in, if they just followed the Lord's command, what the Middle East would look like now compared to what it looks like would look like now compared to what it looks like now. There's a decoder ring I'll give you after the service to get that sentence. 
But, and then he says this, and it's down in verse 9. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, all right? Check this out. Second Chronicles, you've got to write this one down. This might be a good one to memorize, at least the first part of it. It says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, so that he may strongly support those whose heart is his. How cool is that? I love that verse. The last part of the verse isn't so cool because then he says basically to Asa, it's like, but you didn't do that. And you'll find the story of when Asa, when Asa began to take, set his mind on the things on earth and seek the earth's way, and you see this in other kingdoms through scriptures, but as he did that, you see his, his ministry as king to diminish. And you don't see great stories of God working in Israel, Judah through him, from that point on. In fact, just a few verses later, it's time for another king. Because he lost focus in chapter 12. Asa became sick later, diseased in his feet, and yet even in his disease, the scriptures tell us he did not seek the Lord, but he sought the physicians. He didn't learn the lesson, so he was not having the impact. See, Asa was a good guy, blameless, all the stuff that God said in the beginning about him, but then his focus shifted, and he became unusable. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, okay? Look at, this is so important. It's so easy to lose focus, and, and we need to, as a body, help each other to keep focused, right? We need to come alongside. If you see a brother stumbling, you come alongside and help him up, right? You don't come alongside him with the, the judgmental kind of tone and say, well, you're not setting your mind on the things above today, are you? Cluck your tongue, you know, kind of just beat them down a little further. No, you come alongside and say, man, I've been down this path too. I know what that's like. I want to be here for you. Can I wrap my arms around you? Can I hold you up during this time? Can I pray for you? Can I come alongside? I'm not trying to judge you. I've been there. I understand what you're talking about. I need you to do this for me. I'll probably need you to do this for me down the road. Let's walk down this path together, honoring God, setting our mind on the things above. Anybody in this room not want somebody to come around you when you're like that? We feel like that, but if, they came, if we came and we were, it was in a, uh, an attitude of love, would it help? If it was genuine, you bet. Who doesn't want to be helped when they're in a hard situation? Yeah, we may fight for a little while or things like that, but this is what body life is about, right? Come alongside caring for one another because good, it's possible for good men like Asa to lose their focus. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Verse three, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. The verb there, you have died in the Greek is not present tense like the ones we've already looked at. But it's aorist, what they call aorist, which means it's something that happened in a past time and it's a done deal. You've died. It's done. You have died and your life has hidden with Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been resurrected with Christ. You see, this, and this idea of dying to the old self and to, to be crucified with Christ, this theme that we continue to see throughout Scripture has two components to it, right? There's, there's one component that's the idea of of substitution. That's an atonement issue, right? Where it says Christ died for us, right? And then there's this other idea that we see here that's identification. Christ died with us or for us, or, or with us, I should say. 
And I, you ought to notice your prepositions as you're reading scriptures. I'm just telling you, the withs and the fours and all that are really important. But th- there's a difference there. And this is, you've died. That's not uh, atonement. You're not dying to pay your penalty or your sins or anything like that. That's the idea of you've died with Christ and he died for our sin. And the result is there's a new creation with a new citizenship and a new constitution that is a new uh, uh, way of living, new, new creation. But this is really talking about identification where we've died together with Christ. And there's an effect to that that's totally different, okay? And that effect is there's a ch- there, that you don't act the same. You don't live the same way anymore. That's what Paul's getting to in Romans chapter 6 when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And he says the strongest negative there is in the Greek, and there's about four different ways you can say no. This is the one that's strongest. It's meganoita. It's, it's let, may it never be. It's like a prayerful God. Please, God forgive me. Never let that happen. Never let me uh, use your grace as a license to sin because I've died. See, it's different now. I, I, I didn't... I, that's not dying to go back and do the same stuff, right? I've died. For you have died, and this is a beautiful statement, right? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This brings us to our second key to living that resurrected life, and that's this protected life, realizing your present condition. We see this here in the end of verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a beautiful picture of security. What a beautiful picture of concealment and protection. The verb there is hidden is a perfect passive. What that describes is this happened at some point and it has continuing effects. So your life is hidden and it's, there's, it's still hidden, it's protected, and it's concealed from certain uh, destructive elements. It's hidden now, but then here when we get to verse 4, and we'll see this in a little bit, it's going to be revealed again, okay? So this is something that's happened, and, and, and it's, you're, you're, it has continuing effects until verse 4, there's this final revelation of us all together. And this idea of hiding, as I said, has this idea of concealment. Uh, that is, we belong to an invisible realm. Uh, it's different now. Uh, things are not as they appear Beloved, we, now we are children of God, it says in 1 John 3, 2, and it has not appeared as yet as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians two fourteen: natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And the point of those two verses really is this idea that there is a, a set of things going on that's different than what face value may, may give you. That's why setting your mind on the things of earth is so faulty because you don't see the whole picture. It's like the story in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6 when the king of Aram comes, again Aram, right, coming against Israel, and he's, he's making his plans. He says, we're going to camp over here. Next thing you know, Israel knows they're camping over here, and he's like, what's going on? Is there a spy among you? And his counselors tell him, so, you know, there's not a spy among us, but there's a prophet in Israel, and what you speak in your bedroom, he knows about. Well, let's go kill him, was the king of Aram's response. Let's get rid of this guy so we can make our plans. I don't understand the logic of that, quite honestly, because if he knows when you're moving your people, I think he's going to know when you're coming to kill him too, which we find out, right? So he finds out, 
He's in Dothan. He goes to Dothan. He brings all his forces. It's like, you know, uh, an A-bomb to, to kill a mosquito, right? And he brings everything against them. He surrounds them. And you remember the story where the servant goes out, sees this is going on, starts to tremble. And then he goes back in and the prophet says, you know what? You're just not seeing this correctly. Again, it's spiritually appraised. There's a war going on you don't have any idea about, right? You just don't get it. And he prays, Lord, just open his eyes so he can see. And Lord opened his eyes, and he saw not the, the huge army of the king of Aram, but he saw the chariots of fire of God, right? And saw there was a whole different thing. And the Lord again routed them. You see... That's the way we look at our cancer. That's the way we look at our loss of a loved one. That's the way we look at our problems and our job and everything else is we look at it merely on the face value of how is this affecting me, a very selfish perspective, amen? And when we really should be looking at what in the world is God up to. And a zillion years from now when you're in heaven, do you think it matters what your job is here now? Or if you know, you're, you're, what your Southern Cal Edison bill was? Or, or you know, do you think these are the main things you'll be dwelling on upon that time? Of course not, right? I'm not minimizing the importance of all these things, but what I'm saying is they are things that are going on, but they are to be viewed from a, in the light of eternity, like that line in the dot that we talked about some time ago, so that you can see these things and appraise them, not as the end-all, be-all of everything, but a, a small cog in the, in the plan of God where he is trying to uh, use you to glorify his name and bring glory to him. So you get the bad doctor's report, and instead of going, everything in this world is my life here, you say, you know what? I'm going to honor God through this. And that person in the cubicle, three cubicles down from you, looks over there and goes, if I had that kind of report, I don't know what I would do. But look at the peace on their face. Look at the way they're trusting the Lord. Look at the way their church family comes around them. Look at this. What is going on here? This is like nothing I've seen in Los Angeles or Orange County. And God opens our eyes to the reality. And perhaps that's the opportunity for the gospel to save them. Now, which is more important? Just for a second, okay? I know this is a hard one, all right? But if you were given two months to live and you knew one person was going to be saved, which, and you had a choice, God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. Here's the, here's the diagnosis of two months. I'll either heal you or this person can get saved. What would you do? Now, we're in church, so you're all going to say the right answer, right? Yeah, sure, I would, the gospel go forth, right? Or it might be, well, who is the other person? <laughs> you know, is, it, is it my long-lost lost mom or is it my enemy, you know? But see, the fact that we would struggle over, I would struggle over a question like that, a choice like that. The fact that we would struggle over that shows how much we view the things on earth more than the things above. True? You've died. And the reality is not the reality anymore. The, the, the things you see around it aren't everything. Your life is protected. It's hidden with God. It's concealed until the day where, where you will be revealed and it's secure. I love the picture here where your life, picture this for a minute. I don't have, what do I have? I don't have anything I can put in my pocket here. You guys remember my name, Dave? Okay. Your life is a wadded up name tag. This is Dave's life. It says Dave on it, so I know it's my life. Your life, well, that didn't work. Your life is hidden with Christ, here's Christ, in God. I love that. That's like 
It's like the ultimate M&M, only it's protected, right? You're not going to get through God. Nobody can snatch out of his hand, right? You're not going to get through Christ. Your life is here in the safest place of safest places. Isn't that awesome? Look at the security in that. It's amazing. I remember when I worked in the oil business in the Gulf Coast down in Texas, that uh, I'd go to these offshore platforms, and one of them had this thing. It looked like a big Tylenol capsule. I said, what in the world's that thing for? It says, well, when the hurricane comes in here, certain people have to stick around. You know, and then we get them out at the last minute. Sometimes things change and we can't get them out. So this is for their protection. They get inside of this little capsule here and, we, and it's all sealed up. And then when the hurricane, drop it in the ocean and wait till the hurricane passes. Can you imagine? It's like the ultimate ride, right? But here it is. This, the storm is going on around and they're safe and secure in this capsule, bobbing around in the ocean until this thing's done. That's security again. And we're protected. We're, we're with Christ and we're in God. I love that. The reality is, folks, nothing here is secure. You may have just got your physical and everything's perfect. You may be the number one salesman at your company. Can I just Your 401k may be through the roof on returns right now. Your house is paid off. Everything's perfect. There is nothing secure. Nothing. That can change overnight, right? I remember the first time I went through an earthquake. To me, earthquakes are worse, in some ways the worst that it can be because, you know, a hurricane on the Gulf Coast, you track it, right? Oh, it's leaving Africa, it's going across Haiti or someplace, you know, and then, you know, you can see it and it's like, if I want to stay around, I can stay around, but if I've got any brains, I'm going to leave, right? There's warning even in Kansas with tornadoes and things like that, but I never will forget the first earthquake of any size that I felt here in California a dozen or uh, probably 15 years ago now. Woke up in the middle of the night and the whole place is shaking. It's like a 5-0. It's not even a big one, right? You guys were probably like, but it was like shaking. My daughter, who was just a little girl at that time, what grade? Doesn't matter. She comes in and she's like, uh, "Ah," you know, so I'm I'm like super dad, right? So I'm like, uh, the next day, she's like, I don't want to sleep in my bed. I can't sleep in my bed. This is scary and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, it's an earthquake. You know, it shook once. That's it. So I thought, here's my super dad idea. All right, Courtney, what you can do is this. I'll let you sleep in our bed every night until there's not an earthquake. I thought, and tonight there won't be one, right? And then same time, 5 a.m., boom, boom, boom. We're on the third floor of a, like a cheaply built apartment complex. And this thing starts shaking around. I'm like... Wow, that's kind of weird. Now I'm starting to get nervous. <laughs> the earth, if the earth is shaking, right? What is secure past that? That's the picture of the end too, by the way. I'll tell you what's secure. As a Christian, you're secure in Christ. Though the apartment complex crumbles upon you, you know what? When my eyes are closed from death, whether it be from a heart attack or an earthquake or whatever it happens to be, or slow, painful death in a nursing home or something, you know what? When my eyes close, I won't be thinking about that pain anymore, and I won't be thinking any fear because what I'll see is the face of Christ, and everything will be perfect and right, and I will not dwell on that again. It's beautiful. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And then verse 4, and this is the key, the third key, the exalted life, realizing your future consummation, your future destination. It says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you, no longer hidden, you also 
will be revealed with him in glory. Don't miss that little phrase there, Christ, where it says, who is our life? That's really a qualifying statement, isn't it? If I'm hidden with Christ and God, you know what Christ is? He's my life. That's what Paul says, right? Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. That's the perspective. That's setting your mind on the things above. And Christ, who is our life, and life is what you're alive to, right? What your mind goes to, all that. He, and it carries this idea of he's our source, he's our center, he's our goal. He's the way, the truth, and the life in scriptural terms. He is the son who has the life. First John 5.12 tells us, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you'll be revealed with him in glory. You see, because Christ is our life, we have nothing to fear. In the year 2000, in August of 2000, Kim and I went to Scotland. Beautiful country. And on the border between Scotland and England, castles and castle ruins, like all along that border. And at first when you get there, it's like, oh, a castle, how cool is that, right? A castle. And then this is a castle again. Pretty soon it's like, oh, there's another castle. Not going to stop at every one of them, right? We get there, and, and you notice that they're all right along this border between England and Scotland. Some of them are in mint condition. They're perfect. Beautiful. I mean, like you just see the horses riding up to them now. And some of them are ruins, just nothing much left of them, just stones and rubble and that kind of stuff. And the interesting thing that I learned there was this. The difference between the ones that were still intact and the ones that were not was similar, it was the same across the board. You see, the ones that remained and were intact had a water source within the walls. All the rest of them, they didn't have a source of water and they had to go out to get water. So they got destroyed. The people got, they eventually got so thirsty they had to leave and then they got taken over and then they tore it down. When Christ, who is your life, your source, your water supply, as it were, when you have that, there is no harm that can come to you except that thing that has passed through his hands for his purposes that will still leave you improved upon better than before, no matter how hard it may seem or look like. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we who are in Christ are going to be revealed with him in glory. That's going to be an awesome day, folks. An amazing day. Turn your Bibles to it, Revelation 19. Let me show you this just kind of in closing. Revelation 19. Revelation 19 shows us in prophetic terms what that day will be like when we will be revealed with Christ in glory. Revelation chapter 19 is describing the second coming. Okay, this isn't the rapture. Uh, we're with Christ. We're not meeting him in the air, that kind of thing. There's, there's judgment and condemnation involved with this. There's none of that in that first round, okay? Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven open. That's John's talking here, okay? He's writing the book. I saw heaven open. Now, that's a fearful moment if you're not saved. If you see heaven open and you're not saved, this is not going to be good for you. I saw heaven open, and behold, 
a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. He is Jesus Christ here. The white horse is a symbol of victory and triumph, okay? Uh, they used it in Roman tri- triumphal processions. They would ride in on a white horse. Remember, he came in a cult the first time. This time he's coming in on a white horse. He's called faithful and true because he's faithful and true, right? He's faithful and true to his promise to return. He's faithful and true to his warning against unbelief. He's faithful and true in his character to punish sin. And in righteousness, that is, with no favoritism, he judges evildoers because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8.1. And he wages war. That's against evil, okay? Verse 12. And his eyes, and he hearkens back to Revelation 1.14, he says, eyes are a flame of fire. That, that's the idea, eyes that penetrate the heart of men to judge, eyes that see every little detail. By the way, he sees all now. You understand that, right? You want an accountability partner? Can I give you one? The eyes of the Lord see it all. Again, it's fine to have people helping you along the path. That's how the body works. But can I just say, well, you can lock yourself away in the darkest room with six doors and all that kind of stuff. And if you're, whatever you're doing, he knows and he sees. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, crowns, okay? Originally a crown of thorn, now he's got many crowns of sovereignty. That's different, okay? And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. By the way, people always ask, what's that name? Did you read it? Nobody knows it. By the way, if you're ever hearing question and answer, I don't know, MacArthur, it doesn't matter who it is, and they ask the question and says, uh, what is this name? And they answer it, just walk out then. They don't, they, nobody knows it except for himself, okay? And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That harkens back to Isaiah 63. And his name is called the Word of God. And now check out 14, because this is where we get in the mix. And the armies, and that's us, okay, the church, tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that's the righteousness that we have through Christ, we're following him on white horses, again, this triumphant procession. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, the word of God, so that with it he might smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, Isaiah 63 again. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's an amazing day because until this point, you know, you're hidden. But then at this point, you're revealed with him. And the heavens open up and a great army that you're a part of as a believer. You come out of heaven. You're not going down to fight, by the way. You're not, there's no sword in your hand, anything like that. This is him coming and the second coming and righting all the wrongs that have been in existence all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the second coming. And you got front row seats to it if you're in Christ. The first time he came on a colt, now he's coming on the white stallion of victory. The first time he wore a crown of thorns, this time he come, he's come back with many crowns of sovereignty. And the first time he was called the king of the Jews, and this time he is the king of kings and lord of lords for the whole world to see. When Christ, who is our life, our source is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let me ask you a question now. If all this is true, and it is, if you've died to your old self, if you've been resurrected with Christ, if he has uh, protected your life, if he he has given you a past conversion, if he's 
giving you this present condition that this describes, if there is this future consummation that is described in our passage, let me ask you a question. <coughs> How do you live life now? You see, to understand who we are in Christ is to set your mind on the things above. To understand how it's all going to finish out is to set your mind on the things above. To understand what he has done, he saved sinners who were lost and dead in their trespasses and sins, and none of us could save ourselves. And by his grace, he bestowed upon us, he forgave our sins through the finished work of Christ so that we might live. He turned us into new creations. If this has happened in our life, there should only be really one response, and that is to set my mind on the things above, right? Give him the glory. Issue forth with praise. Have thanksgiving. Live my life, which has been bought by him by such a precious cost, right? And such a high cost. <coughs> it has been bought and used whatever minuscule days I have left for the bigger picture, the things above, for Christ. That doesn't mean everybody in this room runs out and becomes a missionary in the full-time missionary or a pastor or something like that. What it means is you're an army of God, not just then, but now. Your life's hidden with Christ. Go out into this world and have an impact for the kingdom of God. There are people lost and dying all around us who need to hear the truth of the gospel, but we're content to stay away from those dirty people, right? In our houses with our doors locked and our dancing on the stars, dancing with the stars on our TVs, and that's all we care about. And we we don't care about them. We don't care about our coworker. We don't care about, see, that's a problem. Why is it a problem? Because our mind is not set on what is important to Christ. See, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he left the throne room of heaven, came down to earth, right, to save us. He left perfection and came down to imperfection. He allowed his creation to whip him, mock him, spit on him, kill him, all that kind of stuff because he cared. That's the ultimate missionary act, right? And yet we won't leave our air conditioning because it's 103 outside? We don't want to sweat going over to the neighbors or somebody to talk to them about Christ? And we won't sit beside somebody and hold their hand through a hard time because we don't care about them. We're not going to show them the love of Christ. We won't bring that cup of cold water. Visit them in the prisons. All those things, when you look at the sheep and the goat judgment, all those things are not works that they did to get on the good side of the aisle. Those were things where people were setting their minds on the things above, and then activities followed that by, nat by nature. You've died to the old self. Died to the old, old stuff too. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. Live to the new stuff. Focus on the things above. Seek. Set your mind on. Think on them. The eyes of the Lord are moving to and forth. Be a good steward of the gospel. You're secure in him. No one can separate you from the love of Christ. And one day you'll be revealed with him in glory. The great Puritan St. John Owen was on his deathbed. And people were checking on him to see if he was still alive because he was dying slowly and they would come check on him, and one time at the end, he said this. He said, I'm still in the land of the living. Then he said this. He said, change that. I'm yet in the land of the living, but I hope soon. I, I'm yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. That's setting your mind on the things above. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this time together this morning again, and we thank you for your word, your truth. And Lord, to the extent that we have set our mind on the things above, it gets easier and easier to do that. Um, But we confess to you, Father, that we are often distracted by the things around us and things that are not of the greatest importance or things that we raise to a level of importance that we shouldn't. Or we just merely view them as parts of our life that are meant to give us pleasure and comfort and meaning in some way here rather than as opportunities for the gospel and for discipleship and for working forward in the, in the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to be kingdom seekers, to seek your righteousness and to set our mind on the things above and all the things that are on earth because we've died. Our life is hidden, praise you, for with Christ and God. And we're going to be revealed someday with Christ in clouds of glory. But until that time, Father, may we glorify your name with our every breath. In Christ's name.